Michael? Michael? I've got some people that would like to meet you. Hello, Michael. My name is Aaron Corey. I've been following your case for years and still know very little about you. I'd like to know more. About that night. About those involved. Do you ever think about them, Michael? Feel guilt about their fate? I borrowed something from a friend at the Attorney General's office, Michael. Feel it, don't you, Michael? You feel the mask. Say something, Michael. Say something. You can feel it, can't you? It's a part of you, Michael. It's a part of you. Say something. Say something, Michael. Welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum, the horror movie podcast that covers every single horror movie, one film and one episode at a time. I'm your host, Mike Snoonian. A little bit of change of plans right now. Jerry has to step away from the show temporarily to deal with a family emergency. Um, Not going to share too much. Um, There is stuff online, and we can maybe put a link to it here in our show notes, but... You know, it looks like he'll be back hopefully sooner rather than later. But, you know, in the meantime, he did need to step back for a bit. And we, you know, totally respect that. Um, it'll probably change the show a little bit and kind of what we do. But I think in the long run, it's got a chance to make this an even bigger and better show. Um, you're not going to just hear from me tonight because nobody wants to hear me prattle on for an hour or so on my own. We actually have two great uh, co-hosts tonight. Uh, first up, we have returning to the show, uh, Brian Kuyper from Ghastly Grinning and Dread Central. Brian, how are we doing? I'm doing great. Um, glad to be here, as always. <laughs> glad to have you back. Um, very happy to have you back. We are also joined by 
Veronica Maitland, formerly of the podcast Zero Flicks Given. Uh, and we are, I'm excited to have her on because basically just conversing with her on Twitter, she's hilarious. So I thought... Wow, that's, uh, that's a lot of pressure, Mike. So it's a ton of pressure. So <laughs> Thank you, you for better, filing that on. <laughs> yeah, you better have some jokes. It's all Okay, we'll see what I say. Who knows? <laughs> so, Veronica, how are we doing tonight? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. I'm so I'm so uh, grateful to be here. Thank you. Oh, I am excited to do this. So this is usually the part where I'm like, Jerry, what are we talking about tonight? But that's my job tonight. So <laughs> we are here to talk about uh, the 2018 Blumhouse kind of reboot sequel of uh, Halloween. We're wrapping up the franchise tonight and moving on. Um so yeah, I guess we'll dive a little bit into the background first. Um, I guess you know what I, what I'll do is before we do that, Veronica and Brian, when did you kind of come on board with the Halloween series? Is it one you guys grew up with? Is it one that you came on late? You know, what were your thoughts on on John Carpenter's Halloween and basically all eleven movies as a whole? So from my perspective, um, when I was a kid, so I'm, I'm 37, so I was born in 82. Um, my, my mom was, was a pretty big horror fan, um, which was pretty cool growing up. Um, I got to see some really cool stuff. Um, but there was one movie that she had me stay away from, and that was uh, the Halloween movie. So um, I didn't see the Halloween movie until after I had seen the Friday the 13th series the nightmare on elm street series because she she hadn't previewed those yet so the halloween movie to her was was terrifying because it was it was the ultimate vulnerable babysitter which is what i i did which is what she did so it just terrified her um so it, it i was older when i when i watched the halloween series and i kind of dove in pretty late in the game um it's become a tradition, of course, but uh, yeah, it, it took me a little while to get into it, and um, it's, you know, it, I can see why. Um, it, it's bizarre, right? Because the Halloween series, in and of itself, isn't this isn't the scariest, right? It's not the goriest. It's not the bloodiest. Um, but I think psychologically, when you're a young woman and your job is babysitting, um, it becomes this sort of internalized terror that there's something after you um and i think she just wanted to spare me of that which is you know good parenting um just throw me into the friday the 13th where sleeping is fine um and sleeping around is fine with the nightmare on elm street and the friday the 13th but um (laughs) (laughs) you know you can have as much you know (laughs) whatever just go ahead and dream pleasant with nightmare on elm street but um with with the Halloween series, it was very much like she guarded me from that. So uh, so that's kind of my my experience with the series, um, you know, growing up. Excellent. Okay. And Brian, yourself? Yeah, I came into it uh, with Halloween 2 was the first one I saw. Um, I, th- I think I must have been in uh, sixth grade, so around 11, I think. When I saw uh, when I saw that, then I saw the first one, which immediately became my favorite movie. Um for many years, it was um, without a doubt my favorite movie, and I just stuck with it. I s- saw um, all of them, uh, but strangely enough, I didn't see any of them in the theater until this one, until the 2018 one. Um, all of them were on video before that. Mm-hmm. So. Interesting. Okay, mm-hmm. so just 
Interesting. So I think I'm in the same boat as you in terms of what I saw first. Like Halloween 2 uh, was my introduction to the series, and I remember watching it. I used to play on like local television, you know, back before cable when you'd have like the rabbit ears up. It would play on local TV, like on a loop every Halloween season. Right. Uh, and then probably was the first I saw in theaters was H2O as well as the two Rob Zombie entries. I skipped Resurrection because even back then you could tell that was a dumpster fire of a a movie. (laughs) I have no idea why I didn't see H2O in the theater. I mean, that was right at the moment when Halloween was everything to me. And uh, I had that opportunity to see it, but for some reason I didn't. I don't know why. Um, And um, Rob Zombie was not really my thing. Uh, when those came out, so I avoided them. But um, hey, I'm glad I saw the most recent one at least. Well, it's interesting because the zombie film, like in 2009, when Halloween Two hits, it does about half of what Halloween does. 2007's Halloween does in terms of its overall box office, and that kind of throws a lot of things up in the air, as well as the fact that basically every character from Rob Zombie's film is dead. Um, Michael Myers is dead. Laurie Strode is dead. Um, Dr. Loomis is dead. Annie is dead. There's, and you're not going to, as much as we love Brad Dourif, you're not going to have like the continuing adventures of Sheriff Brackett really kind of <laughs> dictate where the Halloween is going to go. <laughs> Zombie is out after Halloween 2. Like, he can't get away from the series and the Weinsteins fast enough, basically. He is all done with all of these movies, but. Overall, like the audiences are pretty much done with this kind of movie. Uh, two months after Halloween 2 comes out, Paranormal Activity debuts. It had gathered rave reviews for two years on the festival circuit. Um, rumor or legend has it that Steven Spielberg found it so scary that he would only carry it around in like a little garbage bag. He didn't want to actually t- touch the screening disc he got. Um, I find that... <laughs> Super weird and silly of a story. Um, but this movie is going to come out in very much like the Blair Witch Project had done a decade ago. It really is going to give the horror, horror genre a kick in the ass overall. Uh, and it also, you know, now you're, you're getting away from these like really grim and gritty, ultra gory, ultra violent movies. Like that's pretty much done by this point. And although there are still some remakes in the next 10 years, you don't have this like cycle where it seemed like every month something was getting a remake or a reboot. Um, a Nightmare on Elm Street comes out in 2010. It does well for a weekend and then falls off everyone's radar at that point. Mm. I Lost? can't imagine why. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was terrible. I... And putting off talking about the Elm Street series just because I really don't want to talk about that movie. (laughs) (laughs) Put off the whole series because, woof, you were scarred in 2010. (laughs) Yeah. I I don't know. Like, you know, I took out a little doll. I could show people where the doll, the movie touched me. (laughs) (laughs) Good place. Uh, But Paranormal Activity is put out by Blumhouse. Uh, which is going to become important later on. Uh, So Jason Blum has this really basic, simple idea. Like, let's have these very small budgets. We'll give the creators creative freedom. 
We let them do whatever they want as long as they can stay within a budget. And even if a movie does terribly, the budget is so small that it's not going to be like ruinous financially for us overall. So Paranormal Activity rolls out and on a budget of like basically a Prius, it makes $193 million. It kills the Saw series for a number of years, just absolutely eviscerates it. And this just becomes like a license to print money for the next four or five years. Mm -hmm. uh, James Wan, who created the Saw series, comes out with Insidious uh, for about a million bucks. That goes on to make $100 million and allows him to start doing things like The Conjuring and really become one of the kind of brighter names in horror over the next 10 years. Even a movie like Sinister, which has mm -hmm. like a $3 million budget, and I think Sinister is the one of the best um, original horror properties of the past 10 years. It uh, really is, yeah. So terrifying. It's, it's, it's yeah. Disturbing. Don't revoke my horror card, but I haven't actually seen Sinister yet. I'd really well, like... Well, you have something to look forward to, then. I do, I do. I've, actually, I've been really wanting to see it, but just hasn't worked out to see it yeah. yet. There's, you know, every time someone hasn't seen a movie, it's just an opportunity for something to be a, a first-time watch for them. Isn't it exciting when somebody's telling you about their favorite movies, and then there comes a title that you have not yet seen, and you just get, like... It's like Christmas morning. <laughs> it really is. I love that. A lot more running over people's skull, which is much <laughs> like our Christmases growing up. Um, but yeah, it's it that goes on. It makes like almost ninety million bucks. Um, so you have this like powerhouse in horror. I mean, basically anything they put out makes money. So they get their hands on the Halloween franchise and turn it over to David Gordon Green and. Danny McBride, two people that you wouldn't Obviously. normally associate, right? right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, nothing says Halloween like Pineapple Express, right? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but these guys are, I mean, they, you know, comedy and horror do share a lot in, in common in terms of, like, timing, in terms of... Absolutely, they do, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I absolutely adore Eastbound and Down and um, Vice Principals. I think that those... Shows are both brilliant, uh, they're untouchable, and they're funny, but they're dark as hell. Mm -hmm. I haven't so, seen Eastbound and Down, so that's, you know, a thing for it's, me. It's fantastic. It's Great. It's grimy, and it's dirty, and it's just filthy You're Speaking good. my language, Mike. It's filthy Perfect. Good. Right. good, good, good. So what do we think overall? What, what, you know, I'd love to get your initial thoughts on... 2018's Blumhouse uh, reproduction of Halloween. What do we think of it just being called Halloween? Is that confusing for everybody? Well, this is the, what, third film that's just called Halloween? It is. Yeah. Um, so, I don't know. It, now, with, with, with Rob Zombie's Halloween, it kind of makes sense, because it's a remake of the original, right? Or it's supposed to be, right? Um, this one is actually supposed to be a sequel, so it's a, I don't know, I find it a bit confusing, because you have to call it Halloween 2018, uh, but, you know, hey, it's simplicity, it's back to the basics, so maybe there's something there. Yeah, it's, not only does it do that, it, you know, what's odd about this movie, it is now 
what timeline are we in for Halloween? Uh, it wipes out all of the other sequels. So basically, Halloween 2 completely taken off the map at this point. Yeah. Um, Halloween mm-hmm. 3 taken off the map. The uh, Curse of the Thorn, the Thorn trilogy taken off mm-hmm. the map. The H2O taken off the map. Rob Zombie's taken off the map. What do we think of this decision to basically wipe everything out and just go back and pick up as a sequel to the, just the original movie? For me, coming into this, I, I, I love it. I love the 40 years later. I love the broken Lori. I love the family dynamic. Um, I love the broken family. I think, that, I think that revisiting this 40 years later, I think they did exactly what they needed to do. Um, to revisit um, Lori's trauma because I, I think I was reading the Jamie Lee Curtis. She, when she, um, when she was presented with this role, she said, well, Lori went to school on November 1st, <laughs> right? Like she went to school, she walked into class, she sat down and she was the final girl, but at the same time she had to live her life. And I think that, I think that this is a really, I, I think that's a really strong sequel yeah, I agree. I th- I think it was the right decision to make. Yes, to make a very bold choice. Um, as I think I heard an interview somewhere along the lines with uh, the writers, um, and they said they thought briefly about keeping Halloween two as part of it too. Except we have one big problem in Halloween uh, two, and that's yeah. the sister twist. Uh, And they wanted to take that out of the equation, which I think was smart. I think that was exactly what had to happen. Yeah, I I agree. Because I think Halloween 2 is such a fun movie. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think it still holds up to this day. And I think having pretty much the creative team return for that and having uh, John uh, Dean Cundy return to shoot the movie Mm -hmm. gives it that continuing story look. And it is a bummer to have that taken out, but I do agree with the decision to no longer have Lori and Michael tied together as siblings. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. It's just more terrifying when it could be anybody, right? Well, I mean, going back to Scream, it's scarier when there's no motive. For sure. (laughs) And I think that, um, you know, all these sequels that over-explain the backstory of our killer, Mm. uh, they forget about that you know, that it really is scarier if there is no reason um, for this evil to be coming after you. Yeah, Yeah, like, yeah, go ahead. No, you first. Oh, I was just going to say, it's like, um, if you just compare it with something like Jaws, right, the less you see, the better. So the less story there is, it's almost the scarier that it is. So I think that I think that by negating everything in between those 40 years, it really it it, it just that new timeline is really interesting and I'm really interested to see um, like what's next for it. Like, I just, I think that, I think that, yeah, this was all, this was all a great move and a bold move, but a great move. One of the things they do, I think that really helps the film out is they get not just John Carpenter's, they get John Carpenter's blessing, not just sure, go ahead and make it, but mm-hmm. they get Carpenter to be like an active participant in overall now he had almost come back to direct h2o but he had asked for 10 million dollars and uh dimension said there's no way we're going to pay 10 million for you to direct um he had given rob zombie his blessing for the remakes overall so just go ahead and make it your own 
but he didn't have anything to do with it except for like basically cashing checks. Um, here he's approached by the folks at Blumhouse and they say, look, we're going to make this either way. Like whether or not you're on board or not, like this movie is going to get remade. We think we can do it really good. Here's our idea, idea for it. Why not come on board, help us out with it, and be a part of something great? And I think that appealed to him. He decides to come back as a producer. He also comes back to score the movie, which I cannot wait to talk about the score later. Mm. Oh, no kidding, yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's a banger. Uh, yes. But he helps them avoid a nearly disastrous decision early on. Um, I think I know where you're going with this. Yeah. So basically, at the, during the final confrontation, the room that Michael and Lori have their kind of showdown in, where she has the shotgun and all the mannequins are in there, mm-hmm. that room is basically, it's a replica of the room uh, where Loomis shoots Michael in the original Halloween. Initially, McBride and Gordon Green decide they're going to have a twist to their opening, and they're going to have it so Loomis is actually killed by Michael is a pretty big retcon to the original Halloween before yeah. uh, he's yeah. caught. That would explain Loomis's absence. Um, Carpenter steps in and says, this is a really bad idea, which he's right. He's like, why would you do that? Anyone who sees this movie is already familiar with Halloween. They know what happened. This is too big of a change to really make here. Mm-hmm. Don't do this. So I think that... Similar to Halloween Resurrection, where Jamie Lee Curtis's character, Lori, is killed off in the first 15 minutes, and then audiences are trying to process that while learning about all these new characters, that would have been disastrous if, if the new Halloween opened up and Loomis is killed off. That's all I think you'd be able to think about as an audience member for the next 90 minutes. Like, they killed Loomis. Like, that's a huge change to what we had seen before. Like, And I don't think you'd pay nearly as much attention to what was happening on screen after that. Oh, it would be a tough one, yeah. Well, it, it was, because um, uh, that's, uh, in, I, I read the chapter in Taking Shape about this, and um, wasn't it something, like, Lori was actually the one who ends up shooting Michael instead yeah. of Loomis, and, um, which, I, I mean, what you do get with that is you, is you, are in line with the themes of this movie that, you know, they're not waiting for someone to come and save them. You know, they don't have this situation where, um, Loomis breaks in at the last minute and, and saves Lori from this. Um, instead you have Lori being the victor. Well, that also <laughs> completely changes the original ending of the film and how would they even go about doing that and really making that happen? Um, it, it, it would, I don't know what else to add to that, but that's just a, a crazy thought that everything that would be involved in making that happen anyway. Totally agree. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I don't know where you could go creatively from there. I don't know mm-hmm. how, I don't even know how that would actually work overall. So uh, it ends up being like a very cool, keeping that set piece becomes kind of a cool nod to the first movie overall. But I think it would have been a, an absolute disaster to kind of go in that route overall. Mm. So. Yeah, because then you're not just wiping out um, the continuity of all the sequels. You're uh, actually f- changing an element of the film you're trying to sequelize. 
um, and trying to be true to right. um, seems strange. Yeah. So one of the things I'm interested in talking about, part of the reason I think audiences were drawn to this movie is just because the Rob Zombie films had left a sour taste in a lot of fans' mouth. <laughs> I personally, I'm a big fan of the second movie overall. The first one I could leave. Second one I really enjoy, but part of what audiences kind of shy away from is the fact that those movies are ridiculously violent. Like, yeah, people yeah. aren't just killed in those movies. Like, they are stabbed 17 times. Like, D. Wallace is thrown through tables. Like, mm-hmm. it is super graphic and in line with what the, what the times were. I think listening to that movie talked about on another podcast, uh, somebody used the phrase, like, edgelord, uh, which is basically, I think, a pretty appropriate one. Like, those movies were made for edgelord kids. Like, super, you know hardcore kids that are like really into like graphic super graphic up close violence like totally in your face um what do we think of this movie overall in terms of like how violent it is because it seems to me it takes a lot of cues from rob zombie's film i think it does and it doesn't i mean sure if you're going to compare it to halloween where there's what like seven deaths in halloween the original and then there's I think I read there were 18 in this one. Um, I think there's a gradualness to it, right? So most of the deaths are off screen until you get further and further into the film. Um, you're going to still see the gore. I mean, right, there's the bathroom scene, right? That's that's horrifying. And so on so many levels, that bathroom death is just an awful death to watch because, look... If I'm in a rest stop bathroom and I, I and my choices are either die or crawl on the floor, I think I'm going to pick die. Like, I think I would rather die than crawl underneath <laughs> the stalls of a restroom bathroom. Like, just, Michael, come on. <laughs> like, end it for me. <laughs> Listen, if I drop my phone on the floor of a bathroom stall, like, it's staying there. I'm getting a new yeah, phone. Like, new like phone. I, yeah, like we don't we don't play with bathroom bathroom floors here. So that that was a really violent, upsetting death to watch. But I I think that I think that it melds I think that it melds the movies right. Like I think that I think that it starts out a little not not as violent as you you would expect, and then it's kind of just a you know punch to the face. But yeah, yeah, and. I totally agree. There's this sense of, okay, they're starting out the first half of the movie. You just see the effects of the violence. You see, you know, you hear someone off screen. You see um, the gas station attendant laying there with his jaw pulled out. And you you see the after effects. um, But until, and I know we're going to talk about this in a little bit, I'm sure. It's not really until... um, the woman gets stabbed and through the throat that you actually see the violence occur on screen. And from that point, it's like all bets are off and, and uh, it gets pretty nuts from there. But um, well, before that though, you do have that bathroom. You sequence. do have the bathroom sequence. Yes, absolutely. Which is pretty brutal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is, you know, and to me, I think the difference is this. And I think, I think the screenwriter I haven't mentioned is Jeff Fradley, but Mm-hmm. The Bride in Fradley's script is funny, and there's moments of levity in it overall, and I think they do a good job of 
developing some three-dimensional characters that even if they're not on screen for a lot, I think they're pretty relatable. And I yeah. think that makes audiences and myself personally a bit more forgiving of the violence where especially the 2007 Halloween, that movie just wanted to pummel the senses with misery. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you had, it's a good way to put that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like, there's not a single, like, there was a review of Uncut Gems on Slate this week where it was basically saying there's no relatable human characteristics or human behavior in any of this movie at all. Oh, I remember um, seeing that review, oh, yeah. that sounds lovely. I can't wait to see it. <laughs> yeah, I, I really might go see that tonight because yeah. I get like a two-hour and change anxiety attack, and I'm like, sign me up for that. <laughs> um, well, actually, little, what I love about it is a lot of Adam Sandler fans are going to see this movie thinking they're getting, like, the Waterboy oh, 2 or Sure, something. Happy oh. Gilmore? I mean, you're not. You're not yeah. walking out of there happy, buddy. Like, that's they that's are, a rough ride. Yeah, <laughs> are so pissed off right now. Well, I remember I Adam Sandler fans wanting to go see uh, Punch Drunk Love. Oh, thinking that's they were of it's, I mean, that's a wonderful movie, but uh, sure. you're, not, you're not getting Adam Sandler as you know him if you're just a Sandler fan in that movie. I think that's just kind of wonderful that people are like, what the shit am I watching here? (laughs) Um, Although, I I wonder if like some people go to see Little Women and are upset that it's not all dwarfs. Like, that's super super (laughs) Um, So They just expected a bunch of baby Yodas out there and they didn't get it. (laughs) Super lovely. Uh, Can you imagine would watch I've, him for two straight hours. I've completely lost track of where I was with this. Yeah. <laughs> completely lost track. Um, oh, <laughs> human misery. We were talking about human misery. Yeah. Of course, and then we segued into Adam Sandler. It makes sense. Maybe you would. But you, you know, the Rob Zombie film, you have like that breakfast table scene where everyone is like screeching at one another. Yeah. Like, that... Yeah. Uh, his version of Laurie Strode like finger banging a bagel in front of her mom. You know, it's just like <laughs> nobody, no one acts like this ever. Like, no real people. Uh, can ever. I just stop you right there? Because some yes. people do act like that, Mike. But go on, continue. Okay. okay. <laughs> well, that is one thing, though, I think I really do like about this mm-hmm. version uh, is that um, the characters do seem very real to me. Um, yes. No, whether and and I, I, watching it this last time, I realized you know this is like a Stephen King novel in some ways because what Stephen King so often does is he'll write like two or three pages about a character that's going to die in like ten in in another page or two, and um, like but like the cops in the car having that conversation uh-huh. about the body sandwich and, and scene. Yeah, scene. Stuff, you know, and, and you know, I, I just, I, I just loved all that, um, that even these characters that are only going to be with us for a short time in the movie, you really kind of like them and you kind of want to hang out with them. You're right. I agree. I mean, I go back to like the little boy and the dad uh. that stumble upon the, you know, the, um, prison bus that's been turned over like that whole conversation is so funny you know where the kid's like yeah i just want to dance like dancing is my thing right now and it's just God. like 
that's pure Danny McBride dialogue right there. And it's just like clever and funny. And it's not like the dad's not angry at the boy. Like, the, you know, if that was a Rob Zombie movie, like the dad would be calling a boy a fag over and over <laughs> for wanting to dance. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's this is the dad like, well, that's all right if you want to dance, but can we still hunt? You know, and it's really and that whole scene is it's it's so beautiful like when the boy is out of the the uh truck and mm-hmm. the fog is around him the lights from the truck are coming out like it's pitch black all around him like it's so tense it's so well done it is it, it is and it's like the whole movie has a sort of sweetness to it in a way right something like that or um i mean obviously we'll get to it but the 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 scene stealer of the babysitter mm-hmm. and 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 the child um just the you're my favorite and he says I like you too or um even yeah. the dad like I, I can protect you like we don't need Lori I can protect right. you just these little sweet moments that you don't usually get of these very likable characters that you kind of just want to have Thanksgiving dinner with like right. it's it's just this nice these nice moments these nice moments of levity and sweetness that are just surprising in in this type of movie yeah, there, there's definitely that, and I think that makes when something really violent happens at that point, when something like that goes down, you feel it that much more. Like you're not rooting yeah. for the violence at that point; you're right. rooting for the characters at that point overall. Uh, but it makes it more palpable because you have those moments of sweetness in between. Um, you know, killing a, ki- a little kid in a movie is still pretty taboo. Like yeah. even in I remember when this came out, there were people that were upset that Michael Myers didn't kill a baby. Um, like, well, why would he leave that baby alive? It's like, dude, there's what's a what is wrong with you? Where you want to see a baby? <laughs> exactly. Oh my goodness. Kill that baby. Yeah, you know? right. <laughs> um, but but like you know, see that I think a lot of people maybe expected that kid to get out of it, and then to not only have the kid killed, but to have it really mirror that death of Annie in Halloween too, like with Michael coming out of the back and and even the way it's shot, like the way Mm -hmm. the kid is Mm -hmm. positioned, it's the same shot just from Mm. the opposite side. And then you have like the neck break and it's, it's a harrowing moment in the film. And really, I think one of the highlights of it overall. Yeah. What do we think of the, you know, another thing, a cue that, I think that McBride and Gordon Green take from Rob Zombie. What do we think of this fixation on the mask of Michael Myers? To me, it's an odd choice overall because I had always taken the mask from the original series. as like, he just happened to steal it. That's what he got. You know, yeah, he wore it, but there was no real significance given to it. Sure. And one of the things they do here, even early on, is they almost give this mask like this mythic, Mythic power, yeah. Well, I wonder, though, if you're in Laurie's shoes, doesn't the mask have mythic power 40 years later, right? So maybe they're just they're just using that as um, just a, a stepping point. Um, because if I were Laurie, I would only be looking at that mask. So that yeah. mask, whoever's wearing it, has that power. Um, and I think this is the only movie where they actually refer to Laurie's the one that refers to him as the shape. So mm-hmm. this is the only movie where that's ever spoken. I think that his un, like anonymity is it's a big thing and I think that the mask having that sort of mythical power is a little bizarre, right? Because it it didn't. 
But maybe if you're living in Lori's mind in her little world and that little house in her little cage, it, it might. When it makes the uh, the other when it makes sense what you're saying there, it makes a lot of sense for it to affect Lori in that way. But um, for me, and it makes for a great opening scene. Uh, but to have all the patients uh, in the in the institution kind of freak out about it too is oh is that's where right we, is where it goes <laughs> it goes into a little bit of this wow the mask is evil magic you know uh, kind of thing that's a, that's a fair point Brian <laughs> <laughs> but but I gotta say I love that scene that opening scene I think is so strong and yeah. um, just that say something yeah. and uh, then cutting right to the opening credits with that that theme music you know updated and sounding so good and strong and the the right. pumpkin coming back to life and all that um, I, I thought that was I, I think that's a, a, a great opening it kind of reminds me a little bit of, of uh, the the um, in silence of the lambs you know uh, going down to see Hannibal Lecter, you know, in this, in this world and, and, uh, and having it just be a guy. It's funny you compare it to Silence of the Lambs because I also thought just the, just the end, right. Where Laurie's walking around with her shotgun. Uh, it just felt very clear. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah right? there, there is that sense. I, yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's actually a really good parallel right there. I, I had never even given it any thought, but with the lights turned out and her going like room to room, that makes a lot of sense overall. Um, you know, I, I think I think the mask looks fantastic. This is probably the best looking mask since the first movie or the second movie overall. I love you know they do do what uh, Zombie does where he gives it that kind of weathered look, a lot of texture to it, but it makes sense if it's the same mask forty years uh, later as well. Um, but I think it looks gorgeous. I think there's one goofy moment with it, which we'll kind of talk about it later on. Um, and Brian, you mentioned the podcasters, so now is a good chance. I see a show note here saying that these are the <laughs> Well, they have, they have one hell of a Patreon account. Oh, I mean, if they're, <laughs> they're going to be able to give 3000 bucks to, to Lori for, <laughs> for, her to, for her interview, I mean, come on. You have to sell a lot of Casper mattresses and bomb socks, basically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So one, I, I was doing some reading, and one of the questions had come up, and one of the criticisms that had come up is like, why the obsession with Michael Myers? If you are going ahead and you're removing all the other backstory, then you've gone from somebody that has uh, killed hundreds of people to someone that has only killed, I think, five altogether, like his sister, the truck driver from the first movie when he escapes, and then Bob, uh, Annie. Bob Annie, Annie, and Linda. So you have a body count of five, and even during the movie... Oh, don't forget Lester the dog. There's the dog. Yeah, yeah don't forget There's Lester. another dog, too. There's a stray dog in there. So let's go with seven people. Guys, it's okay. seven people. So we're counting dogs at <laughs> this point. Okay. Uh, so so basically, like, this has become John Wick. All right. Fantastic. Um, but you have this killer that's been locked up for 40 years. The body count is a grand total of five people overall. Sure. 
Um, and you have these podcasters that are seemingly obsessed with him overall. And I wonder where do you think that obsession would come from? Like, how would you explain that? Especially 40 years later. Like, these kids were not born when this happened. Like, they... It, they're doing some hipster sleuthing on the internet to find this guy and become obsessed with this guy and say, this guy killed five people on Halloween night. So now what? Like, I agree with you. It's it's bizarre. No, and I think even to the point where when they, when the, uh, blah, 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 not the sheriff, but Will Patton's character, the officer that was one of the officers that brought in, Officer Hawkins had brought in Michael, allegedly after the events of the first movie, he barely remembers like that night. Like it's basically like, Hey, do you remember kind of what happened? Like the town has kind of forgotten that these two things have even happened. Like it doesn't hang over the town at that point, you know, and I guess maybe the obscurity is part of the allure of it. And if you're running some sort of true crime podcast, then having some sort of mystery you can dive into is part of the fun. Uh, But I'm not sure you know, and it seems like they're working at cross purposes. Like, are they interested in Michael? Are they interested in Lori? Do they even kind of know what they're kind of aiming for with their show? So they're kind of an odd addition to the to the movie overall. Yeah, I would think so too. I, it, it's, I mean, it, it's a, it's an interesting device, I guess, to get the story started, but mm. um, it it. it doesn't seem as real world as uh, sort of the domestic stuff that happens um, through a lot of the film. And the dude is also terrible at interviewing. Oh gosh. Yeah. <laughs> he has like no tact whatsoever. Uh, I think. The I count- mean, he's a podcaster. Like, yeah. Right. Like, I mean, I'm not a great interviewer either, but I can just talk. I can talk at people. So, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, who's reading his resume? Like, mm-hmm. but there's like no tact within like three minutes of meeting Lori. He's like, hey, do you want to go to the murder asylum and see Michael? I think you can make him talk. Like, three minutes in, like, she hasn't even like served them their coffee yet, you know? And, I love Lori in that scene. I love her so much. I, I love this Lori. I love that she stands up and tells them to get out, but very sweetly, very quietly. Like, it's just, it's so well done. But, yeah, you're right. There, There is no tact there. Yeah. He's like, how do I feel about seeing my friends butchered? Like, how do you think I feel? Like, well, she's, she's so wonderfully frank with them. She said, she there's is. nothing to learn. There's nothing to learn here. Why, why are you, he, she's asking the same questions you are, Mike. You know, what, (laughs) you know, what are you possibly getting out of this? That bizarre, like, do you think there's a boogeyman? Like, what, what? I mean, literally. And she's like, you don't? People were slaughter. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I I get that. There's a weird deleted scene too later on. I don't know if you guys have. Oh, I watched that bonuses one. on the Blu-ray. I didn't. But... Oh, so I watched that scene. Tell Oof. me. It's like a super awkward sex scene where. <laughs> oh, don't tell me. I'm good. I'm good. Where he no. basically he's wearing the mask. No. And he comes, and he no. comes up upon like uh, the other podcaster in the shower. Like this is some stuff that I've watched. I'm not gonna lie, but I don't want to see it in a movie. Like yeah. I don't want to see it in a Halloween movie. Right. Come on. 
I mean, like, you know, there no. are, I mean, people can wear masks during intercourse. That's totally fine. During intercourse. Completely silent intercourse as well, yes. right? Like, screaming, Absolutely. say something to him as he's climaxing. <laughs> she but... does. She has <laughs> the root of jokes. Um, I don't like this at all. Yeah, it's not a good... <laughs> Do you fuck to the beat? How do you fuck to 5-4? Like, that's a tough thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the podcast is... Sorry, I was taking a sip of coffee right when you said that, so... <laughs> right. So I think one of the things is that I, I do want to talk a lot more about Lori, and we'll get to that shortly <laughs> here, but what do we think of all the nods, like... You know, one of the things I like about this movie, and I think one of the things that others have criticized for it, is how much that it owes to John Carpenter's original Halloween and the way that it weighs and it kind of parallels it overall, and also the other nods to uh, the other Halloween movies. I think, like, uh, Green and uh, McBride had both said, like, you know, we're going to incorporate nods if we can to, like, basically every other Halloween movie overall. Um, but a lot of their movie kind of parallels what you see in John Carpenter's film. We talked about uh, the little boy's death, mirroring that at Annie. What else do you guys remember seeing from this movie? Well, for me, um, I, I think there's an interesting couple of interesting parallels of uh, Laurie being, uh, being shown in shots that were where Michael was in the first movie um she's waiting outside of the uh, i watched this with my son actually and and he and i noticed it too but he said oh that's just like michael was outside the english class yeah and and i didn't even realize I, until i read it in 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 the book but um that pj souls is the voice of the teacher yes. in this. Mm-hmm. and she's teaching on fate just like um the teacher in the first movie yes um so, I mean, that's, that's one of those, those shots where, I mean, that's clearly, you know, instead of the shape out there, it's Laurie. But then at the end of the film, uh, Laurie gets um, kind of thrown, falls off of the balcony uh, at, towards the end, and the shape comes down and looks down, and she's gone, uh, which is, you know, almost exactly the shot uh, from, from the original. Um, mm-hmm. So there's this interesting parallel, you know, of Laurie being, I don't know, as dangerous or as um, strong or something as the shape. I don't know exactly what they're trying to get across with that. Um, I don't know what you guys think of that. No, I think that's interesting. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that's interesting to put Laurie in the place where where Michael was, right? Like... um, she said that she was waiting for him to break out so she could kill him. So she was, who else does she have to learn from but the killer? So right. she she takes from his book. Yeah, that's right. I mean, she's no longer on the defensive in this movie. She right. wants him to show up so that she can kill him. She says that mm-hmm. uh, to to the uh, officer with a hawk. And um, I really like that exchange, too, where there's sort of, some interesting banter between between her and Hawkins mm-hmm. and that scene inside of, of the babysitter's house. I think that is a terrific little moment. Um, yeah, anyway, that's a little I, off the, off the I, also said, 
I definitely want to get to that. That's a big part of, I think, talking about the character Laurie overall. I think that that relates directly to like her journey in, in the movie. But I also like looking at this. Like, there's moments where Hawkins discovers Vicky's body under the bed sheet. Yes, like, direct mm-hmm. reference to mm-hmm. the original Halloween. Dave is pinned to the wall just in reverse, similar to Bob is overall. Right. Yeah. Uh, Lori at the end appearing out of the shadows to yes. say, like, Happy Halloween. Like, it's just an exact, uh, it's mirrors the shot overall. But what I like about what they're doing, especially with those first two, is it's a Michael Myers. It is, I, I kind of like the idea of like Michael Myers thinking, like, it's Halloween. Like, this is the trick part of trick or treat. Mm-hmm. You know, like, Here's a dead body under the under the sheet. Isn't that like a, a fun trick for someone? Like discovering someone pinned up against the wall. Like almost like there's this part of his brain that is absolutely not just killing just for the sake of killing, but that like, hey, this is what we do. Like this is a trick. Like this is all part of the fun of the holiday overall. Right. Right. Well, I mean, he <laughs> carves the one officer's head essentially yeah. into a lantern. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, that is kind of adorable. Now that you point that out, you're right. The- <laughs> <laughs> so I really, I kind of really love that. And then someone noted here, like the woman making the sandwich during the uh, tracking shot looks a lot like the yeah. uh, woman who you know discovers her knife is missing and blood everywhere. Yeah, Halloween um, too, right? In Halloween, yeah. Too, you know? yeah, or even can... just Lori chugging her wine. She did that in H two O. She chugs her wine. Like it's just it's these it's these little moments that that build up this movie. That if you're a fan of H two O, you're gonna be like, oh my god, right? right? So, and I don't think they're so distracting that they pull you out of the movie. Like I think no. your brain makes a connection for a second, and then you're right back in. But they're not so integral to the movie that if you're not a Halloween super fan, you can still enjoy the movie on its own. Right. Yeah, you know, and uh, also there was the silver shamrock masks. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah, the Don Post masks. Make yeah, 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 from Halloween 3. Right. Um, which, is a, which was a fun little moment. Mm-hmm. So where do we want to go from here? Do we want to talk about Lori or do we want to talk about the new characters and this, the kind of next generation of like Lori, Annie, and, and Linda? I feel like if we talk about, well, if we talk about Lori, we can segue into the, in, into the next generation. If we talk about some of like the newer characters, um, we can do the same thing. So that, uh-huh. yeah, I didn't help you at all, Mike. No, you basically had given, I thought I saw where you were going with that. And... <laughs> So I think we need to start the whole episode over because now okay. I'm Yeah, I ruined confused. it. I ruined it. All right. Let me crack that other beer and let's see what we do. <laughs> so, okay, let's go with Lori in this. Yeah. Okay. There's a lot of debate and, you know, we got into a friendly discussion with our friends over at Spinsters of Horror last night um, who have an yes. excellent article up about why they prefer, like, the Halloween 20 version of Laurie Strode uh, compared to this one. And they had some pretty strong feelings against H. Ford, uh, this movie, in terms of how it depicts Laurie. Um, I saw this, like, 40 years later, Laurie Strode is completely unable to move past the night from 40 years ago. And you really look at this movie at what it cost her. Halloween H2O, it kind of walks a fine line. So Lori is still suffering, like she has nightmares. 
She's a functioning alcoholic. Mm-hmm. She's jumping at shadows. She's seeing Michael in places where he's not. Mm-hmm. And she has this really like dominating parenting style that's really overprotective and controlling because she's trying to like control her surroundings and her situation. But at the end of the day, she can still function. She's risen to the role of headmistress at a really prestigious private school. Mm-hmm. She's got a pretty good overall relationship with her son. I think that if you remove the holiday of Halloween from the equation, I bet the relationship functions a little bit better. It gets tense around this time of year. She's responsible, and she's in a really healthy relationship with the school counselor because really everyone should be in a healthy relationship with a school counselor. <laughs> <laughs> We're kind, we're empathetic, <laughs> we're good with kids and pets. Just number one on the list. Yeah. Really, like... For sure. Everyone should be looking for her. But she can <laughs> function. She can function overall is my main point, you know, compared to what we see here. You know, that's my take on it. I'd love to hear both of your takes on what, you know, I know we're kind of backtracking a bit, but mm-hmm. what you saw in Lori in H2O. Please go ahead, Veronica. I have to put something together on that. I have to think about that a second. I mean, that's quite the quiz that you just gave us, Mike. Um, yeah. so <laughs> I gave you so, a quiz? There are no questions. Like, this is not an oral exam. Like, you know, we're not being graded <laughs> right now. I'll be honest. I haven't seen H2O in a very long time. Mm-hmm. I, I just haven't. I haven't been all that interested in revisiting it, to well, be honest with you. H2O is a hard one for me because she's not Lori. She's um, Carrie, right? She's Carrie. Yeah. And it, it feels like Jamie Lee Curtis isn't even playing Lori Strode at this point. So it's a harder connection for me than it is with the H40. Like, it's a, it's a different movie. It's a different type of PTSD. It's a different type of trauma for Lori to go through. And f- for me, um, from what I've seen, the age 40 type of trauma is just, it feels more real. Obviously it's more, I don't even want to say it's more gritty, but it just, it feels like, just for me, the Halloween one and Halloween 2018 are mm-hmm. two very good cohesive movies that deal with um, an event and then that deal with the trauma of the event. And I think that H2O um it's a little more complex than that. Um, and from what I remember, gosh, um, she seems okay in H2O. Um, again, she is that functioning alcoholic, but um, the differences between that and H40 are, are vast. It's just she's, she's not trying to run from something as she was in H2O. In H40, she's trying to pull it in head on and she's prepared for it. In H2O, she's just trying to flee it. Yeah, I would say in H2O, you're right. Like, there's not that sense of closure in H2O. Like, there's this idea that, like, Michael has disappeared overall. And no one really knows if he's alive or dead. They assume that he's dead overall. Um, but they don't, they don't know for sure. And she's changed her whole life in order to kind of get away from it and to escape from it overall. Like she doesn't necessarily want to have closure from it overall. She just wants to avoid it completely <clears throat> at this point. Um, and to your point, I think you kind of hit it right on the head when you said, um, 
she doesn't really feel like Laurie Strode in H2O. She feels like Jamie Lee Curtis playing a character, like to the point where there's even a set point where she says, like, you get your sarcasm from my side of the family. And, you know, one of the things I'm like, I don't really remember Laurie Strode being super sarcastic. Right. (laughs) Right. I mean, Laurie Strode in Halloween was the intellectual, the, you know, the, the virginal intellectual. And I think that that carries through to age, age, I don't know, age 40, Halloween, 20, Halloween. Um, it carries through to, to this, this new Halloween. And I think that H2O doesn't do Laurie the justice that Halloween 2018 does. Mm-hmm. I, I watch H2O and I'm like, I'm not watching Laurie Strode from the original movie. You know, I'm watching like a really awesome actress play how she wanted Laurie to be 20 years later from now, Mm -hmm. as opposed to like what I think the character would be from it overall. Uh, Halloween H40, you know, this movie, she's barely keeping it together. And again, I, I think it's when I watch Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, one of the things I like about that movie is how it depicts trauma. And in there you have like a 19 or 20 year old Lori who's only a couple years removed from Mm -hmm. this really shitty, awful event. And she's a complete mess in that movie. Mm -hmm. Like she is, it's painful to watch. It's a a mental collapse. This feels like a continuation of what Rob Zombie was doing, except you have like another, you know, 40 years after the fact you have some more coping skills where you can at least kind of sort of function and not have a breakdown every moment. This Lori is agoraphobic. She's turned her home into a fortress in this military compound. She's trained her daughter for self-defense, but she's done it at this really inappropriate age and has also neglected her daughter in a lot of other really crucial ways to the point where DCF, like the Child and Family Services, had to come in, mm-hmm. take care right. of me from the home because Lori's an unfit parent, and it's revealed she never got custody back of her daughter. Mm-hmm. Right. Lori and Karen's relationship at the outset of this movie, it's really fractured. Like Karen basically has no time or patience for Lori at this point. The alcoholism is hinted at here. You have Lori drinking in her car. You have her chugging the wine, like you pointed out, Veronica. It appears that it's more severe and that it mm-hmm. hampers her ability to function, like Karen comments on it. Uh, right. So it's, to me, both trauma reactions are in both films are accurate. Like, there's no one way that people experience PTSD. Right. Or, um, but this one, I think, is what people would more or less associate with like if somebody was going through PTSD, this is what I think people would assume that it looked like. You know, um, the H4O version of PTSD, I didn't really think about this until really recently, like in the last day or two. And that is, um, she reminds me a little bit of Sarah Connor in Terminator 2. Yeah. You know, where's there's, that's her reaction. She knows this thing is coming back. And so she's going to do everything she can to prepare for it. Yeah. Uh, whereas uh, the H2O um, version of Lori is 
I am going to get away from this and I don't really, and I, I just want to forget about it. I want to push it away. Um, and I, because every person is different, there's going to be just different ways that people react to these things. I think that's a really important point. Like I, and you just said there, Brian, in that like she's preparing for it all these years, but there's no way for her to get closure. No. Right. You're right. Yeah. In age 20, she cannot get the closure because the body's never discovered, but she doesn't really care so much. She just assumes that mm-hmm. he's out there somewhere and she's going to just keep running. In this movie, it's written that Michael escapes and uh, doesn't escape and he goes, you know, doesn't get to continue his rampage and he's been behind bars for 40 years. Mm-hmm. Lori needs to confront him in order to move on. Like, I think. Um, Brian, you had said earlier, like that scene with uh, Hawkins when Laura's like, I prayed every night for him to escape so I could right. kill him. So I could kill him mm-hmm. myself, yes. And until she does that, there's no way for her to move on. Like she needs that final thing in order for her to kind of move on and put that night past her. She's just always going to be scared and, you know, like never able to really be her full self until that happens. And there's just no way for it to happen. And I, you know, but actually, before I get to this next point, Veronica, you had mentioned, like, in the notes here, like, inherited trauma, uh, which is something I had never really kind of given much thought to, and I'd love to hear your kind of thoughts on that, and, like, secondhand PTSD, almost. Well, yeah, I mean, so Lori experienced it, you know, and then in 1978, but then Karen had to only hear about this through her mother, um, up until she was 12 years old, being trained to defend herself against the boogeyman. How traumatizing is that as a child to learn self-defense so you can defend yourself against somebody who may or may not still be out there, who may or may not be trying to kill you? And then not, not only her, but but Allison, too, because Allison is getting it from her mother. Um, <clears throat> and, and Allison is pretty well adjusted. Allison pretty much sees the world for what it is, as far as we can see. And her comment to Lori about just get over it, it's just, mm-hmm. it's so jarring. It's, it, it's so, um, it's so real. It's so much what family would do with each other when they're frustrated or when they're, um, when, when they're trying to put something in the back burner or, you know, when they are just not, um, believing what the family is saying so it's it's just I see every perspective here I see Lori I see Karen I see Allison and I can see why they're reacting each different way Mm -hmm. um but trying to mesh them all together that's a tough sell like that's it's hard to put those three strong women in a room together and have them just kind of talk it out um if Michael never showed up, what would have happened to this family, right? So Lori needed Michael to show up. Lori needed that to happen in order to kind of glue her family back together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that comment that Allie makes when she says, like, well, just get over it. Oof. It's so hurtful, like, to hear because yeah. uh, it's such a slap in the face to, like, a lot of survivors of these really bad events, like, that don't, like, come on, this was so long ago. And I've even heard people say, like, well, if, you know, Michael was just captured, how big of a deal is it that these things happen? Like, and actually, it's even addressed in the movie. Like, the character of David is like, hey, who really gives a fuck? Like, three people died. Like, is that yep. really a big deal compared to all the horrors of the world? Yeah. And, you know, 
on a you know on a philosophical level, sure, he's right. Like, what's mm-hmm. the death of three people on one night compared to what we see every day? But you know, when you remove it from the abstract and personalize it, it's still pretty horrible. Yeah, and when he's saying that, he's saying it to Allison, right? So it's more like this is her worldview, and then <sighs> poor Lori. <laughs> It's right. all I feel is poor Laurie. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think what's really important here is there's a marked change in Laurie's demeanor the moment she discovers Michael's escaped. That oh, absolutely. She, she goes from like fumbling, she's calm, she's assured, she's collected. She's prepared for this her whole life, and now she knows exactly what to do. Uh, she's the one consoling Karen when Karen is hysterical that Allison is kind of missing at that point. She's trained for this eventuality and she's actually like, she craves it. Like she Mm -hmm. absolutely needs for this night to happen one way or another for her to get better. Yeah, I agree with you. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that was put perfectly. That's exactly what she, I mean, you, you could see the shift in her personality and you're right from the fumbling to the stoic from the, um, preparing to the prepared she mm-hmm. she she knew it's like she was in the waiting room and her name was finally called she right. she was right. ready right one of the things i do like though is that even with all this preparation she's done over this 40 years she still has a few mistakes right. in that in that closing in that when she's in the house i mean she has all those mannequins in that room and he could be anywhere in there, for example. You know, I mean, <laughs> that that just seems like one of those things where it's like, you missed one. You know, you missed one of these, right. these things, you know. Uh, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's her collection, Brian. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, you need to have something to shoot, you know, in yeah. the backyard. I wonder if there's like some deleted footage somewhere of Lori just like talking to those mannequins and Brian again another mistake she makes like she goes out of her way to have like 20 locks on her door and to like really barricade it but she has this easily breakable glass that is like the perfect size for like a small arm to go into the lock Right, right. You know, it's, it's, exactly. That's a very good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, like, my in-laws live in Memphis, Tennessee, and they have bars on their doors. I mean, just put a bar up. Just put some bars up, buddy. Like, that's just, you know, you just have to do that. Like, you have to be prepared. I, I love the uh, kitchen island that moves to, like, the murder basement. Like, oh, that is wonderful. Super handy. Super handy. Uh, to do um, but yeah the big thing was like I'm like I remember watching it again for the show and I'm like you know why did she have those glass windows on the front door like that really makes no sense whatsoever to have there considering the um, 40 years of prep for this thing you know to happen and, and right. you know she doesn't even do what the drunk mom in Nightmare on Elm Street does and put bars on the windows right Right. exactly like she just wants no. to see out the window guys I mean that's right. it just oh. let her have what she wants when drunk mom <laughs> in Elm Street is making better choices than you that you really oh no <laughs> really have to question everything <laughs> she didn't do all her research no so overall, like, what do we think this, I think, I love this depiction of Laurie Strode. I think Jamie Lee Curtis really knocked it out of the park with this one. 
that's my thoughts on it. I think we're all on the same page here. What do you, I mean, I, am I missing anything? No, I don't think so. Not from my perspective, at least. Um, I think I, she's just so good in this. It's her best performance as Laurie since the first movie. Mm-hmm. Um, by far, I think. Uh, Halloween 2, uh, she doesn't really do much until that third act. Right. Uh, H2O, like you said, she's just, she's playing Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, then Resurrection, she's, it's just weird. It is what it is. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. I think this was the best depiction of Laurie, even better than the original, I think, as far as Laurie Strode goes. I think mm-hmm. that this yeah. character is is so well-developed and so well-thought-out. Um, and again, everyone has their ha- has their ways of coping, and you know, there's different ways of dealing with trauma. But I, I, I think for who Laurie Strode was and, and the base that was built for her in Halloween 1978, this... Halloween 2018 did her justice. This Halloween 2018 was the Laurie Strode that we needed to see 40 years later, especially without the the story in between. I I, I think this is wonderful. I I like the little you know two unsuccessful marriages and you know the the, the story of Karen being taken away. I I don't think we needed to see that. Nobody needed to see the family drama of Laurie Strode in 1998. Like this. <laughs> This was well done. This was well thought out. And Laurie Strode as a character in Halloween 2018 is the best Laurie Strode we've seen. Right. And to your point of not needing to see it, I think that'll lead us to our uh, our next thing here. I think performances that are given in this movie from Toby Huss as Karen's husband to, oh, gosh, you know. I love, love you, so Toby. Much. Right. <laughs> Judy, Judy Greer is Karen. Like, Judy Greer is always fantastic in yeah. anything any role you give her, she's going to knock out of the park. And yep. in a better world, like she's a leading lady in just about anything overall. Yep. Um, the I think the newcomer kids overall are really great. Like, yeah. you know, like one of my few complaints with this movie is I would have loved to have seen more of them in this movie. They're just not in it enough overall. Yeah. Uh, but they fill in, I think, so well in just the moments they're on screen, all of the gaps in that 40 year time period that I got a pretty clear picture of how things were for them mm-hmm. just from watching them fill in these little gaps here. And they're very believable as teenagers. Uh, they're that's teenagers that would hang around with each other to me. Yeah. You know, they, it seems like a group of friends that is really cohesive and, mm-hmm. you know, you've got very distinct characters among them, but you know, these are, like kids that knew each other since they were in elementary school and in a small town like that, they would, you know, and so you just grow up with these people and you, you co with, um, certain groups of people. And, you know, I, I just, I, I love it. I think it's, I think it's a great um, way to go. You know, and I love that little nod to the first and like Cameron being the son of Lonnie who was, like, trying to break into the Myers house in the first movie until Loomis scares him away. Like, right. you get a picture that, like, Lonnie didn't turn out so well. Like, Lonnie's kind of a <laughs> you know? I, I think that that's, like, a... It doesn't hit you over the head with a mallet overall mm-hmm. um, and become, like, total, like, fan service wankery, but it's a fun little thing. Um, yeah, I didn't even realize that until I read it in the no. book. I totally right. forgot about it, you know? Um, so 
what do we think overall of this new, the new Lori, I guess, you know, um, of Allison, Lori, Allison a, a newcomer like Andy Matichok, I think she's not been in a lot. Uh, ah, she's from my neck of the woods. Like she's from Framingham, which is like 40 minutes from here. Um, so she's like not been in a million things. And I think this is her first kind of leading role. <laughs> what do we think of her as like the new Lori? I think she's terrific. I think she's um, she's great. She, I unfortunately don't think she's when when she gets when they get to this to Lori's house, she's just kind of running through the woods for yes. so long. Uh, so that's kind of too bad. But um, but all all the other stuff. I mean, is she's just so good. I think. Yeah, I agree. I was going to say the same thing is um, the running didn't feel so final girl to me. But um, oh. other than that, I, I, I do think she did a great job. Um, I mean, I, I just think the casting in this movie was was perfect. I, I, I couldn't have I mean, even just casting um, Virginia Gardner as the babysitter who went on to Starfish and just these great like, just, yeah. Ugh, yeah. like it's yeah. just it's it's great casting. And um, I think the new Lori. For me, that was the only hiccup to me. But otherwise, I'm I'm excited to see where this goes. Right, and Virginia Gardner, the little time that she has on screen, is Uh, wonderful in this role. Like, wonderful. She's the flip side of Annie, who is really a terrible babysitter. Yep. Um, (laughs) Like really, I mean, like I don't know if there just aren't a lot of good quality options in Haddonfield in the late (laughs) seventies. Jerry, Jerry and I kind of believe that, like, because the parents are so absent in the first two Halloween movies, and like all of the parents in Haddonfield are just in a giant, like, 1970s key party. Yeah, it's they're all at a key party. They just kind of let at. whoever come on over. Yeah, just like wander in as long as the kids don't die. We're, we're good here. Um, but Virginia Gardner is like. Like though that moment with Julie and like Veronica, you said that when she's like, "Why?" You know, they're like kind of like ragging on one another, and then he's uh, like, "Oh, you're my favorite." It's so sweet. It's so yeah, sweet. it's it's great. It's like, yeah. and and oh man, he ah oh, <laughs> him Julian, I love him so much. He is the star of the movie. So funny and uh, believable, you know. Yes. If you could only save Julian or Baby Yoda, like let's say there's some oh, really odd situation where it's Julian, Baby... Julian, okay. and then we're gonna go out for like milkshakes. Like I am okay. taking Julian out, Baby Yoda. You know what? We can make we can clone another one of you, but wow. Julian, let's go on out. Okay. So you hate Yoda, basically. Yeah, you that's what you take from this. Like just stop <laughs> you, Baby Yoda. You like, didn't even have to think about that. Just at like... my Polish face, just send me like death threats right. to Baby Yoda. Love it. Right. So yeah. basically, like, you've given this thought because you didn't even have to think for a half a second about no, that. No, I didn't. You, and we didn't even have that in our notes. Like, No, so we didn't. Like, that just came oh, out. Right. But he is, you know, I think the, the one negative moment for Julian that I had overall is, like, when he sees, uh, when he sees Virginia Gardner getting, like, pulled back into the room, he's like, oh, shit. And it's a funny moment. And it kind yeah. of... Oh, and then he bolts? No, I think that's a very real moment. I I actually wrote that down. I said, look, if that happened to me, and it was even my husband or my child, I don't have children, so let's just pretend I have children, though, and it was my child, there's no hope. So I'm going to scream, oh, shit, too, and run out the door. Like, Julian has it right. Like, he reacted exactly like I would, I think. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I I mean, don't die in front of me is what I'm saying, I guess. The way I think (laughs) that, like 
play it plays for laughs almost. Yeah. So, no, I agree. To your point, like he goes he goes running past the boyfriend character play I think it's a David, I think it's the name of the yeah, dude. Yeah. Um, Dave and he's like, Miles like, Robbins. Yeah. And he's like, right. you know, like if you go up there, you're gonna die. And Dave says like, well fuck it, like that's the woman I love and mm-hmm. he goes to try to save her and his death is off screen. And mm-hmm. it's like both of their deaths are off screen. And I mm-hmm. think like oh and Dave Robbins who is phenomenal by the way in Daniel isn't real. Yes. Uh, yep. Yep. Oh my gosh, yeah. he's so great in that. Yeah, that movie will fuck you up. That is a brilliant, brilliant movie I finally caught last night. Um, but, you know, I think that's like a, you know, one of the things I love about this movie is that the characters are likable. And I think that that went away for a lot of teen characters. Like, Veronica, you said you're in your late 30s. I'm in my mid-40s. Brian, I have no idea how old you are. 21. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's it. Sure. Okay. I'm 41. Okay. So, you know, like, I'm at that, I think we're all at that age where, like, teenagers are scary. Mm-hmm. And young, yes. people are, young people are terrifying and need to stay off my lawn. Sure. Um, yeah. So, and whenever I interact with one, I have, like, nine in one already dialed on my phone. Um, <laughs> So, but it, it's some point, like, you work in a school, Mike. I know. I work in a very tough school. Uh, so, I, uh, yes. But basically, um, I see, you know, usually watch horror movies now, and one of the things I complain about is, like, these teenage kids, like, they fucking suck. Like, they're not fun. Like, I don't sure. even I don't even see them as friends. Like, there's never any sort of interactions where they get along. And I think Dave, like, getting a tattoo of, like, the day he's going to finally, like, dry hump his girlfriend is great. Yeah. Doesn't she even tell him, like, we're going to so, like, dry hump? Like, not even have sex. Like, so I think that's a really sweet kind of moment overall. And then he goes, like, running towards his death. It's sad. You just brought us all down. But Julian's fine, right? So we're all right there. Julian is listed for... He is. He's listed for Halloween Kills. Okay. But, spoiler alert, because... I don't know if it's going to be a spoiler. Because I know they're filming those back-to-back. He's not listed for Halloween. I know! What are they going to do to Julian? So Julian's going to get got, I think. Yeah, I think he's going to be the new Buster Rhymes, and he's going to be like... Roundhouse kicking. Trick or treat, motherfucker. But he's like 11, and he's just going to get slaughtered. Oh, oh wow. Oh, I hope that doesn't happen. I, I <laughs> because hope. I would die for Julian. But, really? well, but not yeah. Baby Yoda. No, Baby Yoda can suck a dick. I'm going to die for Julian. <laughs> <laughs> Baby Yoda's 50. This is not like a weird thing to say. He's 50 years old. He's consentable. He's, so. he's lived a life. He's lived, he's a, lived life. a life. More life than uh, us. I see the notes here. The greatness, the quiet levity of Toby Huss. Oh, yes. Okay. I, Toby's wonderful. Toby is wonderful in everything he's ever been in from like already the strongest man in the world back in Pete and Pete to like as Cotton Hill in King of the Hill. And you just get little bits of Toby Huss in these, in these roles. And he's just his small lines that you could miss if you weren't paying attention. I got peanut butter on my penis or I know jujitsu. Like, like where did it, where does this come from Toby? And 
I have to say that is my son's favorite line. I <laughs> I watched this uh, this with him uh, both times that I've seen it on on video. Uh, I, I watched it with my son, and both times when when he says I got peanut butter on my penis, he just <laughs> cracks up. So it's just and, like a bizarre thing because he's in pants you guys he's not exactly. like he didn't this naked he's in pants but he, it's not like when you drop peanut butter on your pants you're just like oh I got peanut butter on my thigh you didn't he's just he just did penis and it's funny right. <laughs> nope well it's like that line in Shakes the Clown like I've got that peanut butter pussy brown oh he's Shakes the Clown it's, it's just red like you know it's a direct <laughs> reference to that movie Yes, that's exactly what Danny McBride was thinking. Like, let's really? reference Shakes the Clown, that deep Halloween, cut. Yeah, Halloween 18 is a sideways sequel to Shakes <laughs> the Clown. Okay. Oh, my goodness. I can't wait to see the next two, then. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Um, but, you know, I, I love, like, the interactions of, like, Toby Huss and Jamie Lee Curtis, where, like, his character is trying to be the protector. And I yes. Think yeah, he, yeah, that's – and, you know, I think you see that also with Dave's character – you know, they're, they're trying to be, you know, what, you know, I... I well, the definition of, of, to, of, of the man of the house, right? Like, yeah, yeah. but then you get yeah. Lori, and you get Karen, and you get Allison, and you even get um, Vicky, the babysitter. I don't, I don't know if that's her name, but you get... You get all of these people, yay, and you get all of these women, like this is a very woman-forward movie, and I think it's just such a strong movie in that... And that the men are trying. And I mean, my husband would try, but I'd die. I'd die if someone walked in the house and my husband mm-hmm. tried. Like, <laughs> I would have to say, oh, shit, and run out the door. That's how right. I live. Like, <laughs> I would definitely ponder if the life insurance is paid up. <laughs> and then I'm like, all right, it is. I can clear a pretty cool amount of money if I run out the door. Right uh, yeah, student loans, right. man. Let's right. get out of here. But I have run to out say, going like I'm rich, and then just run out the door. I have to say that the, the the those little moments with Toby Huss though um, really made me feel his death. Yes. When when he gets killed, it's just like oh man, poor guy. Yes. Really, that one really got me this time. I around. agree, like especially on the second or third or fourth viewing, like it's yeah. it's harder and harder. Like the more you connect with Toby, <laughs> oh, the harder that is to watch him die. Agree. No, I agree. And it's does Karen know that he's dead by the end of the movie? I don't know. Lori finds him stuffed in the closet. Right. Off uh, Linda from the first movie. Well, that's another good point. Yep, exactly. Like that's that's I, that's a reference I don't even I didn't mm-hmm. even make. But like, does Karen even know that her husband is dead by the end of the movie? Yeah. Oh no, dear. The, the fact the fact that they do go that they're uh, in the truck together at the end and he's not there. I, I think mm-hmm. she probably knows and at that point. Oh, but can you imagine yeah. getting more traumatic news from your mother, Lori Strode? Like, by the way, I know we prepared for many years and you were taken away from my home, but also I found your husband dead in a closet. Mm-hmm. Like, ouch, poor Karen. I just right. want to see Karen's healing. <laughs> right. You know, Karen's going to, I think it's a, an interesting choice. Like, Karen, um, I'm pretty sure that Karen is a counselor. Like, that's the choice that right. she's yeah. made for her career, you know, and she references. 
uh, cognitive behavioral therapy mm-hmm. for her mother uh, in the movie, which I remember hearing that. I'm like, that's not that's not what I would use. Uh, but anyway, that's the here and there. But like, I think it's interesting that like Karen goes on to like after having this really fucked up mother and messed up life, like I want to make sure that nobody else goes through this. And it's a really nice little moment for her over overall. Um, There is someone we have not really talked about in this movie at all. Before you move on from Karen though, before you move on from Karen, can I give you, can I cut in for one second? Of course. She has the moment that makes me just want to pound my fist in the air at the end of this movie where where she grabs her rifle and she's like mom i can't do it i can't do it and then michael comes into the into the stairway and she goes gotcha you know so all of that training and all that stuff that she was avoiding for all those years something stuck and um man that moment is i i just think it's so badass it's great yeah i love that moment I agree with you. I, I think that um, for me, when I remembered back on this movie, um, it, it kind of got jumbled with me f- um, with another movie, um, A Quiet Place, right? Where the yeah. daughter is, uh-huh. yeah, it's it's very similar in the setup of the ending where the family comes together and the the mother and daughter at the end are, are, are fighting for their own protection. And it's kind of like the daughter clicks in. And I think that Karen, you're right. Like that was a great moment. Greer hits it out of the park. Like I think, yeah. You don't think that she's, you don't think she's trying to trick Michael. You think that she's real, and, and you're given evidence throughout the movie that she's like really does not know how she would handle this. That she's really trying to like put everything that that Laurie's taught her past her. So it's right. really good to see kind of that training like kind of kick in at that moment. Yeah. So there's two other characters we need to discuss really quick. And I think I'm going to save the last one for kind of like maybe some little goofs about the movie or like my minor complaints. I love this movie. and I know that yeah. Jerry loves it as well. Um, we haven't talked about the shape at all. And he's played by James Jude Courtney for the most part in this movie. Mm-hmm. I know that they made a really big deal about Nick Castle right. coming back, uh, but he's really only in it for like about a minute uh, when – Lori sees him for the first time in that reflection in the mirror. That's oh. Nick Castle, but I think okay. everything else is James Jude Courtney. Interesting. In I was wondering where he came in. I, I couldn't find. I was it, too. So. Yeah, I was curious about that myself. Right. So yeah. Mm-hmm. And I like that it's not super obvious that, like, again, it's great that he's there. I think he does the breathing as well um, for the shape overall, and I like that they brought him back even for a little bit, but. Um, you know, I thought James Jude Courtney was he was a fantastic shape. Maybe the best since Dick Warlock in part yeah. two. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree with that. Yeah, there's no argument here. Like he was he was cast perfectly. Mm-hmm. I mean, this to me, for the first time since Halloween two in nineteen eighty one, it really feels like the shape to me. And I think the movie that comes the closest besides this one is Halloween six. And I think that there's enough there that I thought that was a pretty good portrayal, but this to me really feels like a continuation of that, that first movie overall. Um, I think that the Michael Myers killing spree, that single take tracking shot, that might be one of the best sequences in all the horror movies. Yeah. Yes. Filmed wonderfully, for one, like that single take. And I love how Michael 
you don't have them on, you know, it doesn't do the over the, you know, first person point of view over the shoulder shot. Yeah. It's very much third person. And I love that he disappears off screen. Yes. For chunks of that overall. Yes. Um, that makes that sequence so scary. Yes. <clears throat> the first time I saw that in the theater, um, when when the woman's talking on the phone and she's she's obviously heard this news oh my gosh this horrible thing has happened and she closes her window and you know that he's in the house <laughs> and just comes up behind her and it is and, and, and that's the first really brutal killing of that moment and that and it's riveting yeah oh my gosh yeah uh. That's a rough one. She's taking that phone call. You see, uh, oh, it's just perfect. It's perfectly shot. It's just the tension. I, I, I just remember seeing that for the first time, and it just felt like I could put myself in the shoes of 1978 and, and what people were seeing for the first time. Like, this wasn't brand new to me. This wasn't a new shot, but it... it there's something about seeing the shape do what the shape does. That's that's just this like movie magic that happens in front of you, and it's it's horrible and it's horrifying. And no, we shouldn't see murders, but at the same time, this is this is this is history that's happening right in front of you. And just watching that, just that one shot and the and the knife through the neck, and it just good. And I love to, yeah, and it's a great moment. I think it's a CGI moment, but yeah, you, know, like, yeah, it, you can kind of sure. yeah, yeah. It, it works. Um, but just like I love, you kind of see the thought process of Michael a little bit as well. Like you see him not just kill every single person he comes across. Mm. You see him approach the couple that are going to get into their car and then yep. decide against it. He's like, eh, two in the open. Like I don't want to get caught. But he's also very much this like, I, I use this analogy, I think, in one of the other episodes where I talked about uh, the old show Bozo the Clown, where right. there was a contest you would have for kids in there. They would have a shopping cart, and they'd be at a toy store, and they had one minute to fill their cart with anything they wanted. And you see kind of Michael do that in this moment. Like, he is, like, out for the first time in 40 years, and he can kill. And he you, he wants to do that so bad. He doesn't quite know, like, where am I going to go with this? Like, I want the hammer. Like, you know, I don't want the hammer. I want this knife. I want to use the knife. That's what I'm comfortable with. I right. love seeing that because Michael's not a, a, a nonverbal character, but you can see what he's thinking in those moments. I just think that sequence is, is just really brilliant. And the other uh, sequence I love is Oscar's death. Uh, that's where the shape really feels like the shape, where – you have these motion detectors. I think it's a really oh, fun use of that technology. Um, I think that is that is uh, probably the most I, I seen. I would call Hitchcockian that I've seen in a long time. You know, where you know something is out there. You know, there's the bomb under the desk, whatever, right. and 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 it goes away and it comes back. And um, one of the things I noticed about this one too. Um, We've been trained for, you know, 40-some years, right, about slasher movie tropes. The light goes off, the, or I should say the light comes on, and you see, and Oscar sees Michael there. Then it goes off. When it comes back on, you kind of expect him to not be there. But he is there, and he goes for the kill instead. It, it sort of it sort of turns that trope, and that's done a couple of times in this. Like when um, Vicky is trying to close the closet door, and it's like you assume there's nothing in there, and she opens the door, and there he is. Um, 
I, I think that it's sort of taken these all these years that we've been trained with certain kinds of slasher tropes that, oh, you know, they're going to open the door and it's going to turn out to be nothing. But it, they say, no, we're going to just bam, right there it is. Right. I thought that was really effective um, in the multiple times. I think probably three or four times that's done in this movie, something like that. And again, it ties into that kind of playful, like trickster thing with Michael, like setting up the bodies to be discovered in a certain way. Right. Um, yes. You know, using that technology where, like, it's almost like red light, green light in that sequence where when the lights come on, he doesn't continue to go after Oscar. Mm-hmm. He is still a statue. I really love that. I agree. Absolutely. And also that when that light comes on, especially when you see it in the theater, it's kind of blinding. I mean, it, 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 it takes a minute for your eyes to adjust yourself to see what's going on. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, that's also used pretty effectively in the uh, in the scene with the bus crash, where they find the bus crash. You know, there are these bright headlights and things that sort of your eyes have to adjust to see what's going on. And, and it's like, did I miss something? There could be anything lurking in this sort of disfocused frame of of the of the of the movie, uh, which I find really effective. Yeah. Oh, I agree with that. I agree with that completely. Yeah, the closet scene, the motion detector scene. I love the moment at the gas station, too, where you see the uh, podcasters kind of like filling up their car and in the background, almost blurry, like Michael is pummeling yeah. one of the mechanics to death. Right, right. And, and you know, that's, that's something that's interesting because in the original Halloween in 78 – um, Dean Cundy made sure that you could, that like the whole frame was in focused. Mm-hmm. You know, you could see Michael in these dark, in these corners, you know, in various parts of the screen. Whereas this, you still see Michael in the background, but they're using a technique uh, or longer lenses or something. And so the background's actually out of focus. Um, and But you kind of still see stuff happening. It's, it's an interesting... Uh, sort of twist of 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 the similar idea. Right. Yeah, yeah. They're using portrait mode, so. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what was what was that? I missed that. I'm sorry. Portrait mode, like on your iPhone, when like, ah, only the front yeah. is in focus. Yeah. yeah. But you know, and the other thing with that scene, there's that moment where like the male podcaster like looks at the woman in the van and she is smiling and she hints with her eyes that like something is up and he's completely mm-hmm. oblivious mm. to overall. It's great. I love yeah. it. So I think this is one of the better portrayals of the shape of the whole franchise. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, and speaking of that playfulness is you also have, you know, where, where he's knocking on the door, she at the bathroom, he knows she's in there and he just puts his hand over the top and drops a handful of teeth at her feet. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> to your point, Veronica, like, yeah, I'm not crawling on that. Piece. No. <laughs> just, yeah, I'm going to get those teeth, like dig into my knees and skin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, oh, I've had a good run. I've had a yeah, good run. You know run. what? I'm going to resign myself to death. Thank you. <laughs> Michael, take it away. Right. Yeah. So here is, 
here's my this one character that I think a lot of folks like people that don't like this movie point to this character a lot and it's hard to argue yeah. uh, Dr. Sartain yeah sure what is up with the new Loomis and she calls him new Loomis like uh. yeah so, New Coke didn't work in 1985. <laughs> New Lubis doesn't work in 2018. Well, the problem, I think, with Sartain is he's a plot device more than he is a character. Right. He's an yeah. Uber driver. Yeah. <laughs> really. So talk about that plot device, Brian. Well, I think what we have is, you know, he's set up to be um, very much um, like Loomis at first um but it i don't know it, it just the twist happens so suddenly um when he turns out when he just and and i i again i had gotten to a, you get to a point where you really i at least really like the character of hawkins and to see him killed so unceremoniously by this in this twist I don't know. It it, it bothered me because um, basically Sartain, like you said, he becomes an Uber driver. The, he is yep. he gets the shape and Lori in the same place. That is all he's good for. It seems uh, he wants to know what it feels like to be Michael. And uh, boy, that's a bad. Do- you talk. You know, Mike. You've talked about uh, Loomis being a bad therapist. <laughs> um, but I mean, I don't think he's got anything on Sartain. No, Sartain is not a. Well, I'll say this: Sartain, as a counselor, Michael is his client, and he does have Michael's best interest at heart. <laughs> at the end of the day, he really does show that he cares okay. for Michael. So, where Loomis, from like the get go, like the minute, like you know, and you have that voice, like the the. Uh, voiceover scene in here where someone uh, does like their best Donald Pleasance and he's like, oh, I'd kill him. Like, kill him, burn the body. Uh, you know, like, just incinerate him. And it's like, ooh, like, as a counselor, like, no, like, that's not, that's not Rogerian counseling where you have like universal, po- you know, uh, you know, positive regard for your client. Like, we don't advocate for killing them. Um, you know, like, like I... I dip into a lot of different treatments for a lot of different clients, and I've worked with trauma survivors. I've worked with schizophrenics. One thing I've never done is like shot my clients six times. You know, like that's I've nowhere in my training that I ever like see them shoot your clients, even the well, ones maybe you don't like. One day, maybe one maybe. day. Maybe. Like- yeah. If I'm lucky, yeah, if I'm right? really lucky, <laughs> um, you know. Um, but like, it's just crazy because. From what I was reading, too, when this movie first came out, it was, um, I feel like it was either loved or hated. And if it was hated, it was very much hated because of, like, the Loomis erasure, almost. Um, Just Sartain, he, (sighs) it's all I feel about him is just, like, a heavy, guttural sigh. Like, it it just isn't, I I feel the people who are disconnected, I feel the people who are disconnected because of it. Because I think that. In the original, and even as it went on, you were you were a Laurie fan or you were a Loomis fan. And I think that, I, hopefully you weren't a Michael fan, but Godspeed if you were. Um, but I think that, I think that with this movie, I think that the one misstep was 
was this. Yeah. It's in like to your point, Brian and Veronica, it's a it it's only purpose he serves is to really get Michael in front of Lori's yeah. house. Yeah. At the end of the day, like he gets gets him a ride over there, and this obsession with like, what did he say? Like, can Michael talk? Like, I don't understand it. Um, there's a lot. Like, everyone seems obsessed with getting Michael to speak. You mm-hmm. know, like maybe they want him to go on to start his own podcast. I don't know, <laughs> um, but it's well. But I think there is a sense that we live in a world that just talks and talks and talks, right? And so to have someone who never does is so strange it's like you you know you want to you know you gotta say something right you know right Uh, mike i think it's time for you to introduce our fourth fourth guest uh michael myers Myers. right (laughs) just sitting there next to you yes just hanging (laughs) in the background behind the curtains but you know I could almost forgive Sertain if it wasn't for the moment where he puts on the mask. Oh, yeah. And it looks so goofy. It, like, it mirrors that moment in... um, Actually, you know what it looks like is the moment in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre reboot where um, Leatherface is wearing, like, the boyfriend's face. It looks a lot like that. And I don't want to be reminded of that. Like, oh, it's just (laughs) not good. The one... The one positive thing I'll say, and that this is more like reading into the movie, um, is that the way, like, Michael does not care at all about Laurie Strode. Like, we are meant to build up this, like, showdown between Laurie and Michael as this epic confrontation between two parties that hate one another. It's what we saw in H2O. But what we get here is, like, you get this feeling that Michael has not given Laurie. An, inch, an ounce of thought since that night in 1978. I don't even know if he knows her name or if he's really aware of like who she is. He just ends up in front of her house by accident and is like, oh, I'm already right. chasing after somebody else. This is what I do. Therefore, I'll go after this person as well. I don't get the feeling that he recognizes her at all. And I think that like kind of ties to this idea that like, Trauma doesn't really care about the person that suffers it. It just is. And it's up to that individual to kind of cope and deal and get over with. Like trauma is not going to help you out in any way, shape or form. Right. Uh, Dr. Sartain's line where he says Michael's pursuit of Laurie Strode keeps him alive. I mean, he really believes that. And Laurie on the flip side of that believes that, you know, Michael's going to come after me and I'm going to kill him. Well, right. and, and the fact is they're both wrong. Hmm. I don't think Michael could care less. Right. You Where know? do you think Dr. Sartain got that information from? Uh, I think he crawled up his own ass for it. Yeah, he must it. have, because that's such like a bullshit diagnosis. Like, oh, right. he has, he doesn't talk. Dr. Sartain, you've made this very clear. So where are you getting this from? Is he writing you notes? Like, what's happening here? Maybe they're doing art therapy. Is it charades? Like... Oh, my God. <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> and only if he's wearing the mask the whole time and there's, of like, course. no facial expressions. Sure. Be wonderful. Be wonderful. <laughs> um, before we... 
before we wrap up here, can we talk about the score a little bit? Uh, John Carpenter returns for this. He partners with his son, Cody Carpenter, um, mm. to create the score along with guitarist Daniel Davies. Uh, these three have been contributing together for a while. Like They have worked together on the Lost Themes albums from John Carpenter, where... Right which are brilliant and just wonderful. And it just makes me wish that Carpenter was still directing movies. Um, I, I love this score because it, it, it's familiar. It continues the work that Carpenter has done with like scoring the first three movies, but it doesn't, you know, when you watch a lot of movies now that kind of try to mimic what John Carpenter did, uh, with his scores, like they're all, they have that like electronic kind of new wavy synth score to it. And that's not what this is. Um, Davies in particular, like what he creates with his guitar, especially in the moments where that bowstring is pulled across it. Yes. So, (laughs) excuse me. So haunting and wonderful. Like I, I really think this is some of his best work in years. Yeah. I figured maybe I'm, I was biased because I'm a guitarist and I, I, (laughs) And so, so I hear a guitar and a score like this, and I'm just like, yeah. But, but for me, that just uh, and I love the the Halloween, the original Halloween score. I love mm-hmm. the. I know it's done on a on a synthesizer, but that acoustic piano sound yeah. uh, is so sharp and chilling, uh, and I just love that. And it it sort of gets phased out for in the sequels. It, it's very much a, a synth sound, which is fine if you're just listening to the music itself. But I think as a score, um, for me, the original Halloween sound, uh, I found more effective, that sharp-edged, chill, uh, just cold sound of the acoustic piano. But then in this one, you know, adding that guitar and those just the crazy effects that he gets out of it are is just so cool. Yeah, and I, it, I don't. Yeah, go ahead. No, I, I'm, I'm done. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Well, I um, I don't know if you touched on this or not because it's um, it's out there. But I I think that um, I was reading that John Carpenter had shown the original to a film exec, right, and without any sound effects and without any score, and she said it's just not scary. He's like, well, I got to score this bad boy, so he hops on and um, he he scores it in the five four. Uh, in the five four B, and he said it had to do with like learning the bongos with his father as a child. Yeah. And it's just it's just all of these things that came together, and it just it it created this this sense of tension and dread. And hearing it in this in this twenty eighteen, it just it was so nostalgic and so and so um, just terrifying. Yeah, and there's moments too where like there's this huge kind of like bassy moments, which are not usually part of the 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 Halloween like soundtrack. That would you associate and the bottom just kind of drops out of them overall and it's just like you can feel it in the pit of your stomach. Yeah. Um I think it's I think talked a little bit before about the um motion detector scene but i think i think that cut of music is called the shape uh the shape kills and i think that minute of music is just incredible it's so Mm -hmm. creepy and scary i love 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 that that whole soundtrack but those moments in particular overall Uh, and i'm hoping carpenter comes back for the next two i don't think that's been announced but Mm. i'm kind of hoping he comes back and scores some more yeah. Uh, well, I think the three of them obviously have a wonderful synergy together, mm-hmm. and they really they 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 
pull together the great themes from the original, but just elevate it to a new level. I mean, even there's, I never really even had thought of it as Laurie's theme before so much, but there's a, it's a, it's just a delicate little piano, um, dun, 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 or yeah. something like that. I can't remember exactly which one it is, but it's in this movie where in a, in a moment where Laurie has just broken down and she's crying and she's alone and the, it's played very, it's played slower than it is in, in uh, the original. Mm-hmm. And it's just so sad and moving. And, and it struck me so deeply this time watching it. Right. Agreed. Um, all right. So I guess, you know, we're kind of going along here, which is not mm-hmm. a terrible thing. Um I guess I want to wrap up with asking both of you, where does the series go from here? This movie is obviously a huge success. You know, Blumhouse, we talked a little bit earlier about how they don't give anyone huge budgets. This one is a $10 million budget. It goes on to make over $255 million at theaters. So I think we would say that's a success, right? I mean, that's Uh, kind of... Yeah, pretty good return on investment overall, um, and yeah. I think it shows. Like I know, like Ryan Turek from the um, Shockwaves podcast is like you know involved heavily as a producer, and I think that it's one of those things where there's like a lot been a lot of talk online lately, especially with the new Star Wars about you know fan service and making movies for fans versus making a. Um, a product for the artist overall and i think this is a really good meld of people that are fans of the series but understand what makes it work and aren't are also willing to take some big swings with it and not be beholden to what came before it and it works in a way that i think is kind of wonderful this would have been a great send-off for the series but when you're this successful yeah you almost have to make a sequel or someone's going to question your mental health and well-being <laughs> at that point. So where do you guys want to see this go? I think I'd really like to see um, Allison have a bigger role in the future films. Yeah. I think um, they they set her up to to take things on a little bit more, I think. You know, she's the focus of the last shot really because it it goes from Lori to it goes from all three of them really but then it just focuses in on her and to the knife in her hand and um that that tells me that hopefully it will have some give her more to do in in the future films i hope yeah yeah and i mean julian needs a new babysitter guys so that's right right so i mean <laughs> i can't imagine uh uh Laurie's going to take that up again but i think that allison uh is a good is a good stepping stone for that it's hard to say where this is going to go right because it it, it it wound up so nicely for Laurie. but at, well at the end though you do hear um you do hear the shape breathing over the credits yeah. so you know i mean it could be more of Laurie's trauma with the sh- I, I really don't know I, I don't know and I don't know if I'm super excited to see it right because I just I feel like this movie was like you said um, Mike that it's just such a such a nice conclusion for the series 
I think there's okay. also probably going to be some sort of um, look at the effect that um, the events of the 40, you know, what happened 40 years before and again um, uh, on this particular night um, have had on the town of Haddonfield. Because they've been teasing that they're bringing back lots of characters from the first movie, you know, including mm-hmm. Lindsay, uh, including uh, uh, Chamber, uh, the nurse, Nurse Chambers. Yeah. Um, Tommy uh, Doyle. I, yeah, Tommy Doyle. Uh, so I think, I think that is an interesting take, an interesting way to, to go. And, you know, it's not that it's never been done in other sequels, but to do it when it's just a direct from the first one uh, sequel, I think, I think that, I think that has some interesting possibilities. Well, three words, Michael in space. Oh, you know it. Love it. I really, I, you know, in the next one, I think to your, both of your points, I would like to see Allie is a much bigger part of it and have it focused on her. Um, I know that Jamie Lee Curtis is going to come back for it. I mm-hmm. kind of want to see a Laurie Strode that has ridden off into the sunset a little bit and yeah. is has a chance to maybe rebuild her life and is really in the second of the two movies that are in the first of the two movies that are coming out only in it for a little bit overall. Right. Um, and yeah. to your point, make it like, make it Tommy Doyle's story, make it Lindsay's story overall. And then uh, what I'm wondering is because we know that there are two movies left in this, is it going to be, you know, where the second movie ends on a cliffhanger or are they each going to tell their own self-contained story? Or is it really like one story broken up into two parts? And that's going to be really interesting. Um, I, it's a weird thing. I, I find myself like, I absolutely love this movie. I think it's in great hands creatively, but I don't Mm -hmm. really need two more movies. And that's a weird thing. I usually want more, but I just felt like this was such a good way to end things that I'm not sure that I need any more. Yeah, I agree with you a hundred percent. I do too. Absolutely. Do you guys have time for a couple tweets? Absolutely. Sure. Let's do it. All right, so we had a few. We put the question out what people thought of this movie. We had a few responses overall this morning. Uh, and you just want to know what do people think of the new Halloween or the series in general? And from Alleyway Crew, Patrick Vicious, at Alleyway Crew, that's crew with a K, uh, he says, I think the original Halloween is the greatest horror film ever, but the continuity of the franchise is ludicrous. What? No, of course, no way. <laughs> it's perfect. No, there's oh. only five different timelines. No, sir. it's like a choose your own adventure <laughs> book. She uh, continues. I like the new movie though, despite the fact that it was another attempt to wipe out all the sequels they didn't like. I think that's fair, and I think mm-hmm. we discussed. That. Yeah, it is. Uh, our friends over at Spinsters of Horror just said we both feel strongly against this film for reasons stated in Jess's most recent pod, uh, blog post, mm-hmm. which I would definitely look up. We should maybe put a link to it in our notes. I think I yes. Jess from Spinsters of Horror has a very she, you know, and I see where she's coming from. I kind of have a different perspective on it. I don't think either is necessarily correct. I think they're both very personal perspectives yeah. of it. I, I agree think with you. It's really a totally cool. valid blog post. Oh, it's totally valid. Yes. Yeah. So I, and I think it's a really interesting read. So I, I read it last night and yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, so did I. I would definitely recommend people take a look at it. Uh, Ranger One says he saw this opening night. I saw this in the theater opening night. It was great to see folks of all ages really enjoying the film and being scared by it, including people who weren't born when the original came out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Crypt of Horrors, I-636, Neighbor of the Beast. Uh, my first Halloween movie in a theater. I wore a costume and it was awesome. Oh, I would not do that in 2018, wear a costume. Yeah, that's... <laughs> so, Jerry, who could not be with us tonight, and I think Jerry is going to maybe, when he comes back, we'll do a little sideshow with him, because I know how much he loves this movie. Uh, yes. Jerry wanted to weigh in, saying it's a great take on accepting fate, refusing to let your trauma win. Uh, it's Laurie taking ownership over what happened to her. Also, Miles Robbins as Dave equals greatness. Agreed. Yeah. I can't wait for the episode, dude. Well, you won't have to wait much longer because it's officially out once you're hearing us read this tweet. So it's here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So that, you know what? I mean, this is a, the fourth franchise that we've done. Um, wow. In since May. So Jerry likes to pick franchises with many episodes I <laughs> you know and it's funny when we when we got done Friday the 13th I'm like I never want to talk about these movies again gosh y'all are very brave uh, like uh, <laughs> by the time we got to part 7 I'm like I just like make it stop you know Jason goes aside from like Jason goes to hell Freddy versus Jason was fun and I think like, oh, so re- fun yeah. Reboot was fun to talk about because we had just awesome guests on for that show. Um, but like, there's just only so much meat to pick at at this point. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Halloween series, I think, is different. Number one, because you have it starts with an all time masterpiece, not just for horror movies, but just movies overall. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even the movies that I don't love in this series, and there's only two of them overall that I really don't like. Three, three of them that I really don't like overall. They're still really fun to talk about. Like, you might not be a big fan of the Rob Zombie take on Halloween, but they're like fascinating movies to dive into and discuss. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really glad they exist. I think that this movie wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the direction that Zombie went in overall. Like, it wouldn't exist how it looks right now. Um, so I could continue to talk about these movies forever. Uh, but we're not. But <laughs> well, when Halloween kills and Halloween ends comes out, maybe yeah. you'll have exactly. to, have to do a little tag episodes. Well, I think we'll have to start over and just do all I'll just start from the first one again. Perfect. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, but I'm going to be on a bathroom floor somewhere. But yeah. <laughs> well, one of the things that I've done, this is, uh, I made a deal with my son. He's only seen the original Halloween and the 2018 Halloween. Oh. And I told him, now, let's make a deal. We're only going to see the first one in the Blumhouse movies. Because I just want to see what it's like for someone who has never seen any of the sequels. I want to hear his take on how that goes. He's nine. Wonderful. So I'm a terrible parent (laughs) for letting my nine-year-old son watch this movie with me. I let my daughter watch. I, I would say, like, the original Halloween, if it came out today, you would trim the nudity from it, and it would be PG-13. Oh, totally. Yeah. And the right. pots. You'd have, to yeah. cut, you'd have to cut the pot in the car, yeah. too. Yeah, I, I've let... Yeah, you can have that. I think you, you can have You that. can have that, Brian. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but I think overall, like it would be, it would be rated PG thirteen. Yeah, um, I think so. Yeah, I my daughter's nine. I've let her watch one, two, four, and H two O is what we've watched together so mm-hmm. far. And H two O was another one where, like, that barely that should not be an R rated movie. Like that barely feels like a PG thirteen movie. It does not want to be a slasher movie. Well, um, that was kind of the phase where that was the thing. The thing you know, where it's like yeah. PG thirteen. I want to give um, a couple because, you know, we're very big on like researching what we do here and um, pulling from sources. So part of what made this show like a pleasure to do was uh, other podcasts that have talked about Halloween pretty extensively. Uh, One of them was like an, I think it was an eight part series from Amy Nicholson on the ringer network. uh, So good. Yeah, prior to this movie coming out, she did Halloween Unmasked, which really, like, you know, as much as people, as as much as you think people have already talked about the Halloween series, she found different angles to take it from. I would strongly recommend everyone listen to that. Um, The crew over at Consequences of Sound do the Halloweenies podcast, where every month they did a deep dive into a like a three hour take on a Halloween movie every month. They did not love this movie. And it was, it was, it made me sad to hear that episode for them because they were so looking forward to it. Um, that was the whole point of the podcast. And then they felt left down for it for reasons, but it's still a great listen. Also the book taking shape, any fan yes. of series mm-hmm. really needs to read it. It was an absolutely essential piece of research for both Jerry and I when we were doing everything from H2O on is when we got our hands on it. Um, brilliant read. It's available on Kindle, hardcover, softcover, get your hands on it. Yes. So we are putting Halloween to bed and we are doing the lost boys next. Fucking a, I love the lot. <laughs> All right. So easy peasy three movies. You know, yeah. no 400-part episodes. Uh, sure. But Lost Boys, the original, is a movie near and dear to my heart overall. <laughs> so, listeners, thank you very much. Um, follow us over at Pod and Pendulum. Uh, uh, Veronica, Brian, where can folks find you? Not your home address. Don't oh, don't okay. that out. But yeah. where can they find you online? You can find me... Um just on Twitter at my Polish face. Um, or you can find me at, um, on Instagram at the girl with the Polish face. Like it's, it's the same thing. So that's where you can find me. That's what I do. Okay. And right. Brian yourself. I'm on Twitter at Brian D Kuiper. That's K E I P E R. I have one of those names that's hard to spell. Anyway, um, also you can, uh, I have some reviews up at Ghastly Grinning. Um, I was, I'm honored to now be a contributing writer at Manor Vellum, which is pretty cool. Uh, You mentioned Dread Central earlier. I don't actually have anything up at Dread Central, but we'll see what happens. All right. So great. It's great. Well, listeners, we hope you loved our take on Halloween. We hope you've enjoyed the show so far. We got plans for 2020. Um, 
I'm not going to get all emo over here, but this show has become a really big part of my life to the point where I would definitely trade at least one of the pets for it. Um, maybe would you? Two. What about Baby Yoda, though, Mike? <sighs> if Share I had to Baby like Yoda. sacrifice the podcast to save Baby Yoda. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> what a selfish choice. <laughs> oh, sorry, baby Yoda. Oh, You're no. Yeah. Um, but no, it's really been a thrill to like do the show, to interact with everybody, to really feel like part of the horror community again after all things horror kind of died out after 10 years. So this has been great. Uh, Brian, Veronica, thank you so much for joining us and we're having you back, right? Like you guys are gonna gotta come back for this, I'll right? I'll come back. Yeah, I would so, love to. Man. Would love it. So, listeners, we hope you keep coming back. Have a great night. That is the show.